This is ATP Tennis Radio. Welcome to another ATP Tennis Radio podcast. I'm Seb Lozier, and this week we feature three more of our exclusive and behind-the-scenes interviews during a thrilling week at the season-ending NITO ATP Finals. We'll hear all about the development of tennis in far-flung places around the world, and we get the lowdown from one of the men who's helped take Novak Djokovic back to the pinnacle of the game. At the O2, Chris Bowers spoke with Prajwal Hegda from the Times of India about that country's fascination and enduring love affair with tennis. And sticking with the Asian theme, Chris also spoke with Dave Miley, who was head of development at the ITF and is now at the cutting edge of leading tennis development in that part of the world as director of development for the Asian Tennis Federation. But first, a unique insight into the number crunching and level of detail that has helped take Novak Djokovic back to number one in the world. After his round-robin win over Sasha Zverev in London, I spoke with tennis coach and leading tennis data analyst Craig O'Shaughnessy. And I can tell you that if you want to improve your own tennis game, this is worth a listen. I do a lot of Stories for the ATP World Tour website, the analyst for Wimbledon, Australian Open, and working with Novak. And, you know, our sport has survived for so long by thinking that, you know, we, we see the match, we use our eyes, we evaluate it, we form opinions, we guess what is better. Um, but a lot of times when you look at the numbers and the brand new numbers that are coming into the sport right now, you get a completely different look on what really matters to winning and losing. And that's more the lens that I look at this with. I mean, some things are interesting, some are quirky, but it's like, okay, let's look at everyone that won, let's every look at everyone that lost, what's the real difference in there? So that's, that's what I greatly enjoy doing. I don't have a maths degree, I have a journalism degree. So the, the maths side is not the passion, but it's all about understanding the patterns of play and you use the percentages to figure that out. So you talk to me about patterns of play. I mean, what, what do you mean by that? Okay, so you've got four elements to a point. Serving, returning, rallying and approaching. So one of the patterns that, that, have, that I saw, you know, here at London Tour Finals was, was certainly one of those places where you look at the serve and the first shot after the serve as one unit. And I call that a serve plus one pattern. So Nadal and Federer, especially those two guys, they hit a serve. When the ball is returned, they don't want to hit a backhand to start the point. They want to hit a forehand. The win percentages will be much higher. So Nadal, you know, roughly around 78% of the time, he hits a serve and then a forehand. He wins 65% of those points. So in order to understand baseline percentages, even if you win 50% of your baseline points, that's a good day at the office. It's not easy to do uh, to do a lot higher than that. When Andy Murray won the US Open in 2012, he won 50% of his baseline points. When Roger won the Australian Open for the first time in a long time, just a couple of years ago, he actually won 48% of his baseline points. Serena Williams won 48%. So it usually tops out around 57%. Nadal, when he starts with a serve and a forehand at 64%, you just can't make it that high any other way. So these patterns of play 
It's, you know, is it better to serve out wide or down the tee? Is it better to hit a forehand or a backhand? Is it better to come to the net or stay back? The numbers show the patterns that work best. And yes, some players will be a little bit different, but there are certainly patterns of play that wash right through our sport, whether it's here in London or on the, you know, the recreational public courts all over the world. We want to be copying those patterns. And I know you've also got a, a bugbear about how players practice yes. compared to how they play. Because there is quite a big discrepancy, isn't there, in how, in how we, we... You think about golf the same way. You know, we, us amateurs, we just assume we can, we can turn up and hit you know, straight off the tee without doing any practice. The same on the, on the professional elite tennis court. Yeah. A lot of these guys are, are practicing very different to how the game actually pans out, of course. Yes, exactly. You know, traditionally... We're a sport where we, we head to the practice court, we work on our game, we hit a million balls, we think every time we touch the ball we're getting better with forehands and backhands, and then we go to the match and see what works. It's better to flip that. You go to the match, you analyze the match, you cut it up by the patterns of play, you see what's working for you, you see what's not, then you go to the practice court and you have derivatives of the match. You had 15 minutes of serving and serve plus one. You have another 15 minutes of hitting a return and then the next shot. Um, all these combinations all over the court. So you make the practice court specific to the patterns of what happens in a match rather than just going to the practice court and saying, okay, I've got a one hour lesson. I'm gonna spend 50 minutes hitting forehands and backhands mindlessly, endlessly over the net. You know, you know for these young kids all over the world, you know, we're feeding them so many forehands and backhands, and yes, repetition is important, but what we're seeing is that points in a match are short. The zero to four rally length has more points in it at every level of our game than anything else. But when you look at the practice court and you say, okay, for one hour, for 50 minutes, we're hitting forehands and backhands, we're not hitting serves and returns. We throw the, the start of the point in at the end, and then players go, well, you know, I'm really good in practice, but I can't win a match. It's because you can't never get to the longer rallies. You're making so many errors at the initial stage of the, of the point. What's the technology that's enabling you to do this? I use Dartfish. So it's, um, Dartfish first came about at the Olympic Games. It has stroke motion where you put one, you know, one skier next to the other skier. Um, there's stroke motion, there's symbol cam, but I use match tagging. So I'll watch you know, this match tonight. I'll go over uh, Novak. Uh, playing Alexander and I'll tag it so there's certain buttons that I have on the side and at the end of it I'll say I want to see every forehand winner I want to see every serve out wide I want to see um, every time Novak hit a backhand return and won the point and that's the software that enables you to look at a match you know in a different way normally we watch chronologically from start to finish but the patterns of play are separated by time so we tend to forget about them you know the the people that are leaving this match right now they're talking about all of the long points but there were far more shorter points and i'm sure novak did better in that and that's the big reason he won this match miles mcclagan's just joined us hot footed it down from the commentary box and before miles gets his first question in there because um, i know he's going to have some questions for you you've just been talking with marion vider and uh, novak's coach straight off the back of that match yes. i know you you do work with with, uh, with those guys. Do you already know what you're going to be talking about in terms of the patterns of play from that game? Yeah, exactly. You know, Marion is, it's such a pleasure to work with him. His mind, uh, you know, the way he looks at the sport, you know, we're very, very similar in that fashion. You know, we're, we do a little review. You always want to review what just happened. Um, you know, one thing was certainly an acknowledgement early on, basically up to four all, we thought Alexander played excellent, served very well, mixed it up, 
um, a little bit from previous matches that they've played, and then kind of went away a little bit. So, you know, we, we discussed that, and then it's like, already it's like, okay, Silic, <laughs> he's next. Uh, we tag the match tonight. We, we record it and tag it and look at that and, and look at the previous matches and, you know, already thinking about that match in two days' time. Hi, Craig. How often do you find something that that surprises you still? You know, you've looked at so many matches. Is there, is there occasionally something you go, whoa, I wasn't expecting that? Yeah, it happens quite often, actually. Even at the moment, it's, I would say in the last couple of years, looking at the rally length, who wins those zero through four rally lengths. But even with Novak, I did uh, looked at his seven matches from the US Open combined into one unit. And the number one uh, rally length, the number one point length that he's playing by far, and it's the same with all the tour, it's, it's a rally length of one. The serve goes in, it doesn't come back, um, you know, and that's the same for all the, the, the 12 year under, 12 and under girls and boys all over the world. It's the same for the recreational adults. We play more rallies of one shot than anything else. But again, our minds want to believe that, you know, those long rallies and Novak sliding and getting all those balls back and the wonderful exchanges with Alexander this afternoon. We, we think the, the rallies are longer and we think that that's where we should put a lot of our emphasis. And yes, it's certainly some of it, but if you win the short points, you're going to win the match. It sounds like what you do is a, is a mixture of being reactive and predictive with what you do. Can you remember the last time a player came out and surprised you, genuinely surprised you with a total change of tactic? No. <laughs> I mean, That's because he's got a short memory there. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I thought Alexander had a bit of a change today, actually. I, I, you know, I was impressed with what he did. You know, you want to be studying. You know, the last time they played was Shanghai. It was 2-1. and one. It was 2-all in the first set. Uh, he was up 15-love, a loose point, then a double fold, and, and then things, you know, went away quickly. So, again, the first eight games, I was very impressed with what he did. But, you know, there's certain parts of the court that he doesn't do well. And, and, and that's – I didn't see that. He surprised me for the first eight games. And then all of those – little patterns started popping up for the rest of the match. So certainly I was very impressed with his level at the start. Well, I don't know how much you give away. I mean, we noticed, I mean, any time, there's, there's occasions when, when Novak actually hit a short ball and Zverev was reaching forward for it. And he, he made a lot of er errors out of that part of the game. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't think that's a secret on the tour. No. I mean, there's, you know, there's certain parts of the court that were all stronger and weaker. And, you know, Alexander's a very tall guy, getting down low, not that easy. Novak's slice has got better this year. You know, earlier on, I think it sat there a little bit, but he's slicing so well. It sits in that in-between where he's not hitting it hard enough where the opponents can do something with it. It's not too soft that it just kind of sits fat. So He did a, he had a couple of nice combinations where he went sort of deep cross and then short short line. That caught where about today. I, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. And, um, you know, you, you want to be copying that for the next time, and Alexander wants to be looking at that. And, and going out there and saying, you know, let's just work for all week. Let's just fix this low backhand. When the ball sits up a little bit, his backhand's incredible. But, but you're exactly right. When it gets a little lower, it's tougher. Go, go take a week and just focus on that and nail that and come back and make that a strength of your game. And, I mean, there is, there is an element where, I, I don't know how much you're talking about, but, I mean, we talked about Novak's, the mental strength. It's just, I'm not sure I've seen... It's got to be the, the best. I'm not sure there's been a better tennis player in terms of the level of intensity he can keep. Yes, and, you know, he's still not fully recovered, as you guys saw from the, really? the, the illness. <laughs> I didn't see that. i got to be honest, I didn't see that okay. at all. Uh, well, you know, there, there's... OK, there's, the, you mean the, the cold and whatnot, exactly, that, yeah, exactly. the tissue it, come out it, yeah, of Yeah, the tissue's coming out a little bit, and, 
and some heavier breathing after some points than, than we're used to. And he's, you know, um, it takes time to, to really shake a cold and I, I, or, or whatever, you know, the flu or whatever he, he had. And I don't think it, you know, you're walking around in practice, it doesn't pop up. But, you know, there's some pressure in the match um, and your opponent's playing really well and there's some tight moments on the scoreboard. And, you know, he, he, he just had to recover and take his time a little bit. And then at the end, you know, it, it, it kind of, the things fell for him. But yeah, you know, the mental toughness is, is so good. He doesn't, you know, one of the things that impresses me and for all the young kids out there watching, record these matches and look at the patterns of play. And Novak, Roger, you know, Andy, Stan, all these elite level players, they can do so many things on a court. They've got so many options with what they do. But what you'll notice is they stick to the same winning patterns. They try and not get too crazy and not go too much to secondary patterns, stick with the high percentage patterns that will deliver, you know, more points um, as a win for your side of the court. And, and Novak very, very rarely will deviate and start getting loose with his game. I mean, that's a real discipline, isn't it? You talk yes. about young kids and, and also when a player loses a bit of confidence, it's very easy to try and take that little shortcut and think, I can squeeze that up the line or I can just do something a little extra. Yeah, exactly right. Um, you know, today I thought Novak was very, very good at that. He, he wasn't that impressed with himself today, was he? <laughs> no, I, I don't think he was actually. No, I, I think it finished... He finished well, but to four all, there were some very tight moments in there. And, and Alexander definitely was on his game early in that match. Scary question, perhaps, um, given what he's doing and what he's done, but do you believe Novak can still improve any parts of his game? He has a lot of improvement still to do in his game. There's no question. The serving wasn't that great today, even though it's been very, very good. Um, you know, the, the, what you're looking for is small gains all over the court, and it's a small game with court position. You know, I was sitting right across, um, you know, lower level here, right on the baseline, and there was a few times I'm like, move up, move up, just take a step up where he may have waited on that ball. And, um, you know, when, when I see that in the tape, I can isolate that, or I can, I can send that to him and show it to him. You know, this is an opportunity to take a step. You move up one step, the angles on the court are different, the spin can be a little bit different, and, um, you know, I, I think he's added the serve is better this year and, and uh, getting to the net. He's smarter with how he's going in there. The forehand, I think, is a little bit better. The backhand's rock solid. But, um, you know, what Miles said, the mental side of the game, you know, we can all do better with that. And it's handling adversity. You know, you've got to basically expect, and, and again, for all the young kids out there, every single match you play, there is going to be adversity. It's going to come early, it's going to come late. You know, don't ever think you're going to step out there for a match and it's not going to come. But think of it like a storm cloud. You know, the storm cloud's going to roll in. How long it stays around for is, is up to you and how big it becomes ultimately is up to you. But always expect the storm cloud to come. I was talking with Marion in Paris um, after the semi-final win and you know, he was admitting himself that he didn't expect this all to happen as quickly as it as it has done. I mean, given where he was in March, uh, are you are you surprised too? Um, not really. No, I, I mean, he just we we had a plan, and that plan's ongoing. That's a daily plan of of getting everything in place with the patterns of play, understanding his side of the court, understanding exactly what he does well. And you know, I've worked with a few of these top level guys and we give them i think we give them a little bit more credit with a, with how they think about the game 
than we than we should. I mean, you know, these guys are so incredibly gifted at striking a ball, but time and time again, it surprises me when when we talk about patterns and play and talk about strategy that, you know, there, there's still a lot for them to learn. You know, it, it's difficult to be out there in a match and understand exactly what you're doing at, at every level. I mean, it's easier for us because we're looking down at the event. We're seeing and viewing the event. Whereas Novak and the players out there, they're looking out at the event. They're actually in it. And then they have the emotions involved in there. And, you know, so many times a player will come off a court and you start talking to them and their version of what happened doesn't quite match with what I saw, which is why I record everything. And then we go over, it's like, well, here's, you know, they said my backhand was terrible today. I'm like, well, here's the four backhand errors that you made, and they're actually all pretty good. So, you know, video is a massive part of making sure that the relationship between the player and the coach is, is based on the facts rather than the opinions of what we think is happening. I've got one last question for you. I don't know about Miles. Play, about players actually who aren't here, um, we're discussing a lot which of the younger guys, you know, we're talking Tsitsipas, Shapovalov, Hachinov, who obviously Novak's had a good look at recently and he practices quite a bit with him here. Which of these guys do you think is going to ultimately go the best? Tough question. <laughs> uh, Hachinov, very impressive. You know, I think he's certainly risen. Um, he's tidied up his game, the forehand used to be out of pressure and he drops the, you know, I, I think the technique is, 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 you know, it's a difficult technique because he drop, drops the left hand so early. Um, th there's a lot of movement in the racket face and the backswing, but he manages it well. TFO is another guy that has a big forehand that can get a little wild. You know, I, I think Alex Dimonor, the young Australian, you know, modeling himself in in, in the image of Leighton Hewitt, you know, his wheels are something to be seen. You know, what we, what we saw a few points in, in Milan of him just chasing everything down all over the court. He's so mentally strong. He doesn't give up. He doesn't go away. Uh, Shapovalov, the lefty, you know, fantastic. So, I mean, sorry, he's a player that could, yes. that, that should, you know, could probably benefit with a little... Uh Craig O'Shaughnessy, right? <laughs> well, I am a lefty too. I mean, I I do it. Yeah, but listen. I mean, it, it seems to me his he's you talk about the, the the shot striking. I mean, he's amazing. And but it seemed a couple times this year that when 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 the game wasn't on, he didn't really have that plan or where to go to next. Yes, you're exactly right, Miles. Um, disappointed shot selection is something that these young players are learning, and they they spend so much time out there actually striking the ball and hitting the ball. Very very important. But come off the court and be a student of the game. Come off the court and use, you know, analysis tools to, to look at your errors and look at your winners. And, and, and certainly a huge deal is to understand the opponent. You know, for a lot of these guys, you know, you, you, you say even with Nova, you say, how many times have you walked off the court in the last 12 months and gone, I was ridiculous. I played great. I was so happy with my forehand and backhand. I served well. I wasn't nervous. I was very calm. My court position was good. It's a handful. I mean, nobody that I talk to ever says more than five. Out of, five out of, say, 50 uh, for the entire year. So if your A game is not going to turn up 45 times out of 50. How do you win those matches? And it's by looking to the other side of the court and saying, I'm going to make you play your B game. And we saw a little bit of that today with Novak. As you mentioned, Miles, getting the ball down low um, to Alexander's backhand and giving him no power and giving him nothing to work with. So I think these young players try and play great too often. Um, when it's just simply not going to be there, look to the other side of the court, make the opponent play bad, take the W, move on.
Well, the man sitting to my right, Dave Miley. Now, uh, name Dave Miley, if you're into tennis, you might know that name because Dave was for two decades the head of development at the International Tennis Federation. He's one of the leading uh, specialists in growing the game of tennis around the world. And at the moment, Dave, you're involved with the Asian Tennis Federation. What are you doing there? Yeah, that's, uh, I'm, I'm working in Asia. Um, I took some time off after leaving the ITF and uh, I'm effectively the director of development for the Asian Tennis Federation. And uh, it's a very interesting time to be in Asia because my kind of, when I look at the tennis world at the moment, uh, tennis participation in North America is kind of declining quite rapidly. Uh, in Europe, it's kind of static and dropping a bit, but in Asia, both in terms of participation and uh, high performance player development is going up very fast. China is now the biggest market in the, in the world. Why has China not produced any top male players? They've got so many good women. Well, well that's a very good question. I mean, I, when you look at the, the rankings at the moment, there's five Asian player, men in the top 100 now, and there's nine uh, Asian women in the top 100. Um, I think a lot of the, Asian, the Chinese players in the past and the boys have been quite small physically. Uh, the boy who won the um, US Open Juniors two years ago, 2017, from China, he's now working with Sven Grunfeld. I mean, he's very good, okay? And I think uh, within the next three or four years, he'll be the level of Nishikuri for sure, if he stays injury free. So I think there's a difference now that the Asian boys coming out of, out of well, the Chinese boys are physically stronger. And I think now that China are setting their mind to develop you know, good male players, they're gonna do very well. It's amazing what Nishikori's done. I mean, Nishikori, he talks about sort of putting on a disguise when he goes back to Japan because he's just swamped by people. And it's not just Japan, is it? He's massive in the whole of Asia. No, but look, I guess maybe it's the early stage of the life cycle for tennis in Asia, but t tennis is booming. I mean, at the moment, uh, China now is 19.6 million players and all of the tournaments, a lot of big tournaments in, in Asia, I mean, U.S. now is 16.7 million, which dropped from 30 million in the 80s. So China's the biggest market. Second is India with 7.2 million. And then Japan, 6.4 million. So three of the top four nations in terms of participation are from Asia. And I see similar things in countries when I go to Cambodia, I go to Vietnam. Tennis is really growing very fast. So if it's growing that fast, what's your job? Well, well it's it's very exciting time because there's a lot of projects to be done. I, I think very soon the Asian Tennis Federation will be stronger than Tennis Europe. At the moment, I'm trying to restructure their 14 and under uh, junior circuit, where we're trying to develop 10 Category A events and an Asian close. And I don't want to go into all the details, but trying to make the, the, the competitive programs a lot more user-friendly. For example, we're going to have 32 draw events where every player in the draw plays five singles matches. And on the last day, you're playing first, second, third, fourth, all the way down to 31st, 32nd. So every player is guaranteed five good matches. Because one of the things I didn't realize until a few years ago is just how important it is for the development of young players to have a really good junior tennis tournament structure. No, look, you know, a lot of the, uh, the mistakes federations, uh, they, they focus on the training. And look, the training is very important, but I think most countries have very good training. Uh, the problem is to actually get the 80 to 100 good matches every year that a player needs between the age of 12 and 20. And so this is just to go back to the example I have of the Asian circuit. What, what tends to happen is if in normal sort of international tournaments like the junior ITF circuit, if a player played 10 tournaments, they don't know whether they're going to play uh, 10 matches or 50 matches. Whereas with the format I'm saying is if you play 10 tournaments in Asia, you know you're going to get 50 good singles matches. And that's halfway to the number, the 80 to 100 that you need for the year. So the simple rule is 80 to 100 good matches on different surfaces where the win-loss ratio is 2 to 1. So you're not winning all the matches and you're not losing all the matches. Yeah, I get that. Um, when you think of the basic homelands of tennis, which is Europe, North America and Australasia, that leaves out Asia, South America and Africa. Now obviously Asia and South America have had their champions. 
Africa is the real um, desert, if you like, in tennis. We've got an African here at the ATP, well, we've got two actually, where at the ATP finals, Kevin Anderson in singles, Raven Klaassen in the doubles. But what can we do to get tennis growing in Africa? Well, it's interesting, those two players, because you know my background. I, I was the person who set up the ITF training center down in Johannesburg back in 92. And Raven and Kevin both trained at that center at different times. Uh, Raven went on to become a very, very good doubles player. And Kevin, well, the, the story's incredible. Uh, Kevin actually never won the African Championships. He was runner-up a couple of times. But um, look, the biggest problem, I think, in Africa is a lack of competitive opportunities. And so always a challenge. One of my big regrets was that we never really had a, a top African player come out of West Africa or East Africa because they're incredibly talented athletes. But the problem is they didn't get to play enough matches. They usually play... 50, 50 to 60 matches when their counterparts in other parts of the world are playing 80 to 100. But you had some top juniors, didn't you? I mean, the Ungaran brothers from Ghana, there was a couple from West Africa. But they, why did they not make that jump? Well, I mean, Clement Nagorin got to about 120, 130 in the world, so they did pretty well. But, you know, there's so many factors in terms of ma making it as a player. A lot, of, a lot of the, one of the factors people don't uh, pencil in is the expectations. And so, in a lot of the countries, people it's like in Spain, it's normal to be a good player. You know, everybody expects, yeah, you can be top 100, you can be top 10. I mean, there are lots of players successful, whereas in Africa, maybe some players will say when they get to 200, oh, I've done pretty well. And so it's, the, it's actually to, to, to set the high expectations and the people around you to set the high expectations. And so, so there's, a lot, I'm, I'm, you know, there's a lot of factors, but for me, the biggest factor in Africa is that the players don't play enough matches. And to play matches in, the, in tennis, no... No sport travels as much as tennis. From the age of 13, a kid is traveling 25 weeks of the year if they want to be good, and that costs money. And, and, and one of the, yeah, I can talk about the, once you get to 18, in order to play on the future circuit or the professional circuit, players are losing 50 to $60,000 a year just to play professional tennis. And even a player ranked 300 in the ATP or WTA is losing 50,000 a year. So to, to keep going for five, six, seven years costs a lot of money. And obviously, one of the sources of help is the Grand Slam Development Fund, which the ATP puts into, WTA as well, uh, and the four Grand Slams. Is it also right that whenever a player gets a code violation, the fine that they're fined goes into development funds? Well, yeah, that was, it was quite funny because Bill Babcock used to be the director of professional tennis and I was director of, of the development side. So I used to love it when players would get fined because that money went into the Grand Slam Development Fund. So, for example, when Serena had a big fine or John McEnroy had fines years ago, that, that money was used for the program. Um, so it was always quite a, we used to joke when, when, when somebody would be fined. But you need a lot of fines if someone's going to be losing fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 a year just to try and make it on the professional circuit. But look, this is the point, is to, to run the program, the ITF, I mean, the, the development budget has increased a lot over the number of years, and I have to give the ITF credit for that. And of course, the Grand Sound Development Fund contributes something like $2.5 million per year. Um, but it costs a lot of money for players to travel. And, and you've got to see that the player, for example, from Africa, who's quite talented, he's competing with a player from Australia or France. And the, the resources that the French Federation have for their player development program is, you know, 15, 20 million dollars. And the program for the ITF was 4 million for the whole world. So, you know, it is, it's, it's, it's just all relative. You're listening to ATP Tennis Radio. I'm with Dave Miley, international development consultant. And you talk about players traveling the world. You travel the world to try and promote the game. Um, you must have um, run into a number of little situations that you'll be telling your grandchildren about years from now. Well, yeah, I've traveled about 140 days a year for 25 years. I used to joke that it's, you know, that it's hard to hit a moving target and it's hard for the police to find you when you keep moving. 
But um, no, look, I have lots of stories. I mean, probably the, the funniest story I have is one time when I arrived in Azerbaijan in Baku late in the evening and I was supposed to be met by the Federation. <clears throat> and as I came out, there was another guy looking in and he came up to me and said, David? I said, yes, yeah, Dave, yeah. So, oh, welcome to Baku. So we got in the car, we were driving, and eventually I said to him, oh, we're going to the hotel. No, we go to apartment. We're going to the apartment? I thought we were going to the hotel. What's your position with the Tennis Federation? Tennis? Nit? No tennis. Table tennis. David Oil Company? No, David Tennis. Eh? And we had to head back to the airport, so he picked up, he picked up the wrong David. And the Tennis Federation were back in the airport. So there was somebody waiting for you at the yeah, airport? and I, I'd gone with the wrong person. So, 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 so I, I learned that you have to really make sure you have the right people, because a lot of Davids around the world. So that's why Azerbaijan hasn't produced any tennis players? Well, no, well, Azerbaijan is coming up now. They're having a few more tournaments. But look, Eastern Europe, it was very interesting for me. When I started with the ITF, it was 92. And for my first six years, I traveled to every former Soviet Republic and every Yugoslavia, because 21 new countries joined the ITF. And people say, how come there's so many East European players? Well, before that, there was only two men, two women traveled for the Soviet Union, and suddenly there were 30, 40 players traveling. Yeah, they put a limit, didn't they? The Soviet Union said you can't have more than two players per country yeah. traveling. And the same with Yugoslavia. So suddenly there were 21 new countries with the Yugoslav and also the, the 16 uh, Soviet countries. And so, of course, there were going to be more players coming out of those regions. And the other thing is, in those regions, it was a very exciting time because they had good coaches, they had good players, good athletes. And, and of course, once they got the access to the tournaments, a lot of those players came through. And we're seeing an awful lot of people of Russian descent making it to the top now. And, you know, Shapovalov being the classic example, but there's a promising player coming through from Spain, and I'm sure you can name plenty others. Is is there a reason for that that you can put your finger on? I think there's a certain work ethic and also sport is in the nature of those countries. And It's interesting you give the example of, of Canada because I think Canada, one of the secrets, I think Canada is the perfect tennis storm because one of the few countries in the world where tennis participation is going up and also they've done very well in, in performance. But a lot of the players who've done very well in Canada have, have come from Eastern Europe and settled in Canada and they have a very good work ethic and their parents have high expectations of them to be successful in sports. So it's one of the factors. Before I let you go, there's something I just must ask you because it goes back to an initiative you had many years ago called, was it Play Rally Score or something like that? It was the, the ITF Play and Stay campaign which I set up. It was The whole idea was to try to position tennis as easy and healthy and you're right, the slogan was Serve Rally Score. Serve Rally Score because you explained it to me that it's a bit like a music teacher saying, oh you want to learn an instrument, fine, we'll spend the first six months learning scales and arpeggios and you drive the fun out. So why does Serve Rally Score actually make learning tennis fun? Uh, and surely you do have to have teaching technique. Yeah, it was just a different way of positioning tennis. Like what we tried to do, or I tried to do, was try to move tennis from being like learning the piano to being more like learning soccer. The first day at soccer, you kick a ball and nobody's telling you how to kick the ball. And people play the game. So the Play and Stay campaign was, was launched in combination with the three slower balls, red, orange, green. The red ball was 75% slower, the orange ball 50, and the green ball 25% slower. And what it meant was on the first lesson, the kids could actually rally, hit it over, hit it back, and keep score. And that's what kids do in soccer. The first day, they actually keep scoring, they kick the ball, and then people give them technique to, to play better. So later on, the, the coach says, you gotta pass the ball like this with this technique. So for me, before it used to be technique came first and eventually you got to play, the, the philosophy now is more game-based, where the first day people are playing, and then you give relevant instruction, technical, tactical, physical, or mental, to help the player play better, whatever level they're at. It's not so complicated. Well, I'm sitting with Prajval Hegder of the Times of India. Now, over the 10 years this tournament has been in London, Prajval, we get used to Leander Pace, Mahesh Bhupati, Rohan Bhopana. There's normally an Indian at this event, maybe a couple of them. 
there's none this year. Are we nearing the end of an era of these great Indian players? Uh, I would definitely think so in terms of doubles. But for us in India, it's it's almost like a happy shift because we 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 have right now three players in the top 150 in singles, and I don't think we've ever ever had it. And so yes, definitely it is the end of an era. But there is a young doubles, a relatively young doubles pair in Vishnu uh, in Vishnu Vardhan and Sriram Balaji, who they did very well this summer, but haven't done so well later in the year but you know they could playing more tournaments get used to each other they could be um, a pair to contend with in in the future but Rohan and there is this other boy called Divit Sharan who are now our new Davis Cup partnership and so they're there but even though they don't play on the tour together and, and the young uh, pair that you talked about, what's young? I mean, early 20s? Uh, late 20s, both of them. So, uh, not, not, so, you know, relatively young, especially in doubles, because they are a little older. They stay, I mean, they play the game longer, so I guess. I mean, Leander Pace is still ranked 62 in doubles. He's 45 years old. I mean, is he playing at all now? Yes, yes, he's playing challenger events all over the world. He's, I, I think he competed last week. So he's, he's playing a lot of challenger events. He's still competing he's not he's not in the davis cup team but you know i'm sure if he goes to number one or in the, in the rankings in india he would he would probably still make it he's an amazing guy i mean talk a little bit about india it's it's a country that's obviously passionate about cricket and yet we've seen over the years when leander pace won his bronze medal at the atlanta olympics when sanya mirza won a tournament in hyderabad there is a a pent-up passion for tennis, isn't there? Oh yeah, without a doubt, it is because there are there are parts of the country where tennis is really, really big. Calcutta, Chennai, Bangalore, Hyderabad, because of Sanya, there, there is a huge interest in, in tennis, and there is also an understanding of tennis as you know, as an um, how it is in the international, uh, how how it's played. There are a humongous number of Roger Federer fans in India, Novak. Uh, Rafa, you know, and there is and the, the Williams sisters also. Pe people follow fo follow the the sport at the highest level. So and I, and I think that is what has led to this. You know, we, I think in the last three four years we've have a greater number of challenger tournaments um, for the men. We have a couple now for the girls. We I think in the Australian Open, if everything goes to form, we might have four boys and two girls playing the quali qualifying of the Australian Open, which is really unheard of for India and, and a new beginning of sorts. Now, that's optimistic and that's great, but, I mean, one of the players, I think, in the top 150 is Yuki Bambri. Now, I remember when he was one of the top juniors in the world and I was thinking, ah, oh, India's got a, a potential top player. Okay, we mustn't read too much into junior results because you get strong years and weak years. Is, is uh, are young Indian players lacking the... The, f the finances, the support to actually make it, or is it just that it's fiercely competitive these days? It is fiercely com competitive, but I think more than finances, more than anything else, what we struggle in the transition, in, in, in transitioning, is actually proper advice, I think, our junior players, on what they need to do, where they need to go, how they need to train. Yuki was the world number one junior at 15. I can't, he is still transitioning at 25. You know, there is something wrong there there's you know something 
really, really wrong there. But isn't what's wrong a global phenomenon? I mean, I remember when Kafelnikov was breaking onto the scene, he, he could be top 20 at the age of 20 years old. These days, players, by and large, unless they're very special, don't make it into the top 30, you know, the kind of rankings where they would make a decent amount of prize money every year until they're about 25, 26. Yeah, I understand that, Chris. But, you know, between those ages, I'm saying between, say, 19, 20, 21, 22, they spend a lot of time getting used to the tour, training, preparing, you know, of coming to come of age. But our players don't do that. They're struggling. And we have a classic case of Prajnesh Guneshwaran, who today, as we speak, is in the semifinals of a $150,000 event, the highest challenger event in, in, in Bangalore today. And... He is really coming of age at 28 because he struggled in those years. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know where to go, how to train, didn't have, couldn't get to the best of coaches, which is what they need. I think we have the talent. What we need now is, I think, proper advice, good advice. Because this time yesterday we had Dave Miley on, who uh, one of the leading development consultants. He works with the Asian Development Association. And, and I know one of the, the things that a lot of development workers focused on is the transition from the junior ranks. Um, what more can be done in both India and Asia to help players go from being very promising to, you know, to the kind of ranking where they really can make a decent living? I, I think in a sense that India is different from Asia because we really had a great history in tennis. You know, big time tennis is not new to India. Even though we didn't have a, a world number one or a Grand Slam winner, we, Ramanathan was number three, Vijay was 16, um, Ramesh was 27, Sanya was 23. It's not like we were so, but what, what, we, what we really lack in, in, in uh, I think amongst, uh, because we've had great hands and we, we've not had great athletes. We've had artists and, and tennis is changing now. It's such a physical sport and our players, no matter how much they're coached and how much they're told, they are not prepared for, you know, to work that. They do not know how hard they need to work. I think that uh, Goran Ivnazevich was coaching for a brief spell in India and he said, I've never seen hands like this anywhere in the world. A 10-year-old boy can volley and, you know, and volley really well, but they can't move. So... You know, it's a fair point. I mean, in a lot of countries they say, yeah, we just don't have the numbers. But I mean, you have a, a population of one billion in India. Okay, we don't need all of them to play tennis, but there must be enough playing tennis that it generates the numbers to develop the, the to, to warrant the investment. Yes, we, we definitely have the numbers in India. Without a doubt, we have the numbers. What we need is expertise. I think it's just somehow, you know, now players are going out like Ram Kumar, Prajnesh, both of them train out of the country. Yuki always trained out, uh, outside the country. Kids are now training. Sumit trains outside the country. Everybody, but that's the only way because in India, that expertise is just not available. When I think back to Leander Pace's career, it goes back over three decades, I get the sense that the most important win for him was that bronze medal in the uh, Atlanta Olympics. Would it perhaps take an Olympic tennis success by one of the less fancied but very good Indian players to perhaps give a, an emphasis, given that clearly the Olympics scores very highly in the Indian sporting psyche uh, compared with maybe, you know, tour events, Grand Slams? No, no, I don't think... Uh, I, I think that's why I said... Uh, fans understand tennis. They know exactly where the Grand Slams stand. You know, and 
So no matter how high Leander's you know success was in terms of commercial uh, uh, commercial gains, uh, even at his best, he didn't do what Sanya did in in terms of commercial, and that is purely because people understood 23 in the world in singles and you know, as against a, a, an Olympic bronze medal, which will always be treasured. It was a great, great achievement, without a shadow of a doubt. But Leander couldn't translate what he did in Davis Cup and then in the Olympics into onto the single store. And that, there were questions on that, you know. Yeah, his technique was slightly flawed in that respect. Um, I know that for a couple of years, Rohan Bopana played with the Pakistani partner, Aysam Ulhaq Qureshi, and they won a number of awards for that. It was obviously heralded as very much sort of tennis being used to break down barriers, um, you know, given the troubles over the years between India and Pakistan. Was that as... As, as influential in India and Pakistan as we perhaps saw it in Europe and America because it was obviously very touching for us to see an Indian and a Pakistani playing doubles together. You know, uh, Chris, I, I think, uh, maybe this is said often, but it is true, that I really think between the people of India and Pakistan there is no, you know, there is no political rivalry. It is, you know, it is created by the whole, uh, whole political, uh, all the political issues. And, yeah, what you want, do you... You know, if, if there are 12 teams in the World Cup hockey and if you finish 11, you don't necessarily want Pakistan to finish 12. It isn't like that. So I, I, I think, so in a sense, what Rohan and uh, Aysam did, in a sense, emphasized that, that between the people, there was no big, it was no big deal. You know, you could have a Pakistani friend. Sanya married a Pakistani, so, you know, it's, it's okay. And a leading cricketer. Yes. So, uh, yes, uh, building bridges in that respect. If we take an optimistic scenario, and let's say in five years' time there is an Indian player, uh, either in the singles or the doubles, at the ATP finals, who is it most likely to be? I don't know. I don't think... Uh, definitely not in singles in five years' time. Uh, I'm not even sure if there's going to be a doubles. It's good. We're going to come. We're, 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 we're getting the numbers now. Three in the top 150 is really big. I mean, I know it's not for the world, but for India, it is humongous. And so how long will it take? 10, 15 maybe. But we'll get there. We'll get there. So you have to play a long game. Yes. <laughs> uh, finally, I must ask you, this is a bit scurrilous perhaps, but Indian tennis has a claim to uh, something very, very rare. You had a tennis player in a James Bond film hitting... Uh, well, using a tennis racket, not to hit tennis balls, but to, uh, to to bat away missiles. That's a bit special, isn't it? Yes. Vijay, he was really, he was a really, really special champion. And, you know, it was... Um... I should explain, that was in Octopussy, uh, where Vijay Amritraj was with uh, Roger Moore. And, uh, yeah, I mean, did that boost the profile of tennis a little bit, or was Vijay so big anyway that it didn't make much difference? He's really big. He's, he, he's really big. It, I don't know whether it boosted the profile of tennis, but yeah, his own profile, yes. He was, you know, he was more than, he was always more than a tennis player, and that's how India always saw him. And if you ask people to name an Indian tennis player, yes, they might name Leander Pace, but if, if they're of a certain age, more people would name Vijay Amritraj, because he, he was just massive in tennis. And, and does he still have an influence on Indian tennis? Oh, yes. Very recently, he is, he has taken over as the, uh, the Tamil Nadu Tennis Association uh, uh, president. And 
that is the association that has really produced the players now in, in, in the Indian scenario. So, you know, that could, could be the beginning of something interesting for Indian tennis. Well, that is it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Remember, you can leave us a review on iTunes. And for more of our interviews from London and the rest of the year, find our ATP Tennis Radio exclusives channel on TuneIn. If you don't have time for that, don't worry, because next week we relive some of the best interviews from throughout the year, starting in Indian Wells and Miami through to the end of the clay court swing. If you do remember an interview that you'd like to listen to again, let us know on Twitter at ATP Tennis Radio. Otherwise, join us again next week. I'm Seb Lozier, and you've been listening to the weekly podcast from ATP Tennis Radio. Tennis Radio.